0: Business Flashback Lessons, 17-20. through 20. Review, Book 5, Business English. Vocabulary, Part 1, page 150. Aspirational, overambitious, mainstay, imbibe, regulatory, morale, amoral pontificate, condescending, devolve. Writing, Part 1, page 151 what does reaching a plateau mean a business growth plateau is a period of time when your business stops making progress plateaus usually occur during or soon after a business hits its maturity stage in the business life cycle just as a reminder the business life cycle includes five stages one startup right when a company launches they have little to no cash flow but are more focused on its unique value propositions and creating a deliverable two growth Sales of the deliverable grow month to month, cash flows in, and the company gets closer to profitability. 3. Shakeout The company reaches a peak in sales growth, they are profitable, and is well established in its market. 4. Maturity Sales growth slows down or stops, so profit margins begin to thin out, and cash flow stays level. 5. Decline The company loses its competitive advantage, fails to adapt or innovate, and exits the market. How do I know if I am plateauing? Plateaus are defined by stagnating progress. But what does progress mean? Progress can be defined by several factors, including 1. Sales growth 2. Customer feedback and satisfaction 3. The feelings you get as a CEO about whether or not you are moving forward If we go by these definitions of progress, we know that you have hit a plateau if 1. Your sales growth stagnates too your customer feedback turns lackluster three. You have a general feeling as the CEO that your company has stopped moving forward. The most common type of business plateau is a sales plateau. It occurs when your sales growth comes to a screeching halt. What is the importance of a plateau? Any business owner who has chosen to undertake the journey of entrepreneurship understands that it is a process. More specifically, it is a process with amazing breakthroughs, challenging stagnations, and devastating pitfalls. And this is what makes entrepreneurship exciting. The secret to entrepreneurship success is learning to love the climb to the top of the hill just as much as the view from the top of it. It's about feeling just as much enthusiasm from the difficulties as the wins, if not more. How can business owners go from despising the stagnation and pitfalls to learning to love them? Simple, it's all a matter of perspective. Business growth plateaus don't need to be bad for your business. Not only that, but they are an essential part of business success. They can positively change the future trajectory of your business if you choose to see them in a positive light. Video lesson, page
1: 152. TED Talk, Why It Pays to Work Hard. Eight to be great. The eight traits successful people have in common. Number two, work. You know, when I... When I was interviewing all these successful people, they kept telling me how hard they worked. And I remember standing there thinking, ah, geez, another comment about work. Why don't they tell me the real secret to their success? Then finally I realized, hard work is a real secret to their success. All successful people work very hard. Martha Stewart said to me, I'm a real hard worker. I work and work and work all the time. Media tycoon Rupert Murdoch said it's all hard work. Nothing comes easily but I have a lot of fun." Did he say fun? Yes, successful people have fun working. That's why I say they're not really workaholics, they're frolics. (laughs) Jim Patterson, chairman of the Jim Patterson Group, is a a frolic. He says, business is my recreation. I'd rather go to our factories and meet with our people than go to the beach, I can tell you that. Dave Lavery, the NASA whiz who builds those robots for Mars, said to me, we work our fingers to the bone, but it doesn't seem like work. It's fun. It's what we want to do. We don't want to put things down and go home. Bill Gates is a worker frolic. Even after he was a multimillionaire, he worked most nights until 10 p.m. and only took two weeks off in seven years. And he probably spent them on his computer. <laughs> Oprah is a worker frolic. She says, I'd never see daylight. I'd come into work at 5.30 in the morning when it was dark and leave at 7.00 or 8.00 when it was dark. I'm a worker frolic. And over the years, I've gone through many days and even weeks without much sleep just because I was having so much fun. And I got to admit, at times like that, you say to yourself, am I the only one working this hard? Because there's a myth that comes easy to some people. You turn on the TV, nobody's working that hard. guy like Chris Rock stands up on stage, tells a few jokes, what's hard about that? But even Chris says, I wasn't the funniest guy growing up, but I was the guy who worked on being funny the hardest. Trust me, I've interviewed over 500 successful people. Not one of them said it came easy, even though they were doing what they loved. And we tend to underestimate work and overestimate talent. But in the end, work tops talent. Arthur Benjamin, America's best math whiz, said to me, I think numbers and I have always gotten along, but I'm sure my talent is just due to the time and hours and work that I've put into it. Many talented people don't achieve as much success as they could, unfortunately, because they they sit back on their talent and never learn to work hard. That's what happened to Michael Jordan when he first started playing basketball. He had the talent, but he wasn't putting in the work, and the coach actually cut him from the high school basketball team. Boy, that was a wake-up call. He says, I was very disappointed. I started working on my game the day after I was cut. And he soon became the hardest working player in basketball who made fun of the other players who weren't working hard. And that hard work is what made him the greatest basketball player of all time. So I'd say the real gift isn't talent, it's the ability to work hard. And we tend to underestimate work and overestimate smarts. But in the end, work wins over smarts. In fact, many successful people aren't the smartest, they just work the hardest. Francois Parenteau, who Businessweek called the top independent analyst on Wall Street said to me, I'm certainly not that smart. I can't even remember my own zip code. But he also says, work is a big part of my life. I think about investments pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nez Hallett III is CEO of Smart Wireless. And I thought, that's ironic, because he told me he's not that smart. <laughs> he says, I graduated from high school with a, with a C average and college with a C minus average. But now the smart PhDs are reporting to him. How did you do it? He said, if you're going to be successful at anything, the key thing is to work hard. I'm not smart. As proof, here's my actual 12th grade report card. It was the only one my parents ever kept. Don't ask me why they kept it. It's nothing to brag about. As you can see, I was a C student, not an A student. I don't think I'd even make it into college these days. So how did I achieve some success and wealth? I just worked hard, many 60 to 80 hour weeks. And now I know I'm not alone. Thomas Stanley studied hundreds of millionaires, and he discovered most millionaires weren't A students, didn't score high on tests, and teachers didn't think they'd ever succeed. But they did succeed because they worked hard. So the good news is, if you're not the smartest, if you're a C student, not an A student, the really good news is you can still succeed. Because the word success has two C's and no A's. (laughs) you can still succeed as long as you work hard. And what if you are smart? Well, I'm sorry, there's absolutely no hope for (laughs) you. Because many smart people don't achieve as much success as they could, unfortunately, because they rest on their smarts and never learn to work hard. Yong Kim, president of Lucent Technology says, people who are the smartest sometimes don't realize their full potential because things get too easy, so they don't push themselves hard. After a talk, I gave at one of the world's top 10 business schools. A man came up to me and said, you know, when I got my MBA here a few years ago, I was one of the smartest people in the class. I thought I had it made. So after I graduated, I, I sat back, and I didn't work hard, and I went downhill. And now, at this point in my life, I've gone nowhere. I haven't achieved any success at all. He said, thanks for the wake-up call. Now I know what I need to do. I need to work. So the bottom line is, whether you're smart or not, whether you're talented or not, just keep working.
0: Listening, Part 1, Page 153, Script on Page 206 For as long as we've had language, some people have tried to control it. And some of the most frequent targets of this communication regulation are the ums, ers, and likes that pepper our conversations. Ancient Greek and Latin texts warned against speaking with hesitation. Modern schools have tried to ban the offending terms, and renowned linguist Noam Chomsky dismissed these expressions as errors, irrelevant to language. Historically, these speech components had been lumped into the broader bucket of disfluencies, linguistic fillers, which distract from useful speech. However, none of this controversy has made these so-called disfluencies less common. They continue to occur roughly two to three times per minute in natural speech, and different versions of them can be found in almost every language, including sign language. So, are ums and yous just a habit we can't break? Or is there more to them than meets the ear? To answer this question, it helps to compare these speech components to other words. We use it in everyday life. While a written word might have multiple definitions, we can usually determine its intended meaning through context. In a speech, however a word can take on additional layers of meaning. The tone of voice, the relationship between speakers, and expectations of where a conversation will go can imbue even words that seem like fillers with vital information. This is where um and uh come in, or a and m, tutoa and oo, ito and ano. Linguists call these filled pauses, which are a kind of hesitation phenomenon, And these seemingly insignificant interruptions are actually quite meaningful in spoken communication. For example, while a silent pause might be interpreted as a sign for others to start speaking, a filled pause can signal that you're not finished yet. Hesitation phenomena can buy time for your speech to catch up with your thoughts or to fish out the right word for a situation. And they don't just benefit the speaker. A filled pause lets your listeners know an important word is on the way. Linguists have even found that people are more likely to remember a word if it comes after hesitation. Hesitation phenomena aren't the only parts of speech that take on new meaning during dialogue. Words and phrases such as like, well, or you know, function as discourse markers, ignoring their literal meaning to convey something about the sentence in which they appear. Discourse markers direct the flow of conversation and some studies suggest that conscientious speakers use more of these phrases to ensure everyone is being heard and understood. For example, starting a sentence with look can indicate your attitude and help you gauge the listener's agreement. I mean, can signal that you're about to elaborate on something. And the dreaded like can perform many functions, such as establishing a loose connection between thoughts or introducing someone else's words or actions. These markers give people a real-time view of your thought process and help listeners follow, interpret, and predict what you're trying to say. Discourse markers and hesitation phenomena aren't just useful for understanding language and helping us learn it. In 2011, a study showed toddlers common and uncommon objects alongside a recording referring to one of the items. When a later recording asked them to identify the uncommon object, toddlers performed better if that instruction contained a filled pause. This may mean that filled pauses cue toddlers to expect novel words and help them connect new words to new objects. For adolescents and adults learning a second language, filled pauses smooth out awkward early conversations. And once they're more confident, the second language learner can signal their newfound fluency by using the appropriate hesitation phenomenon. Because contrary to popular belief, the use of filled pauses doesn't decrease with mastery of a language. Just because hesitation phenomena and discourse markers are a natural part of communication doesn't mean they're always appropriate. Outside of writing dialogue, they serve no purpose in most formal writing. And in some contexts, the stigma these social cues carry can work against the speaker. But in most conversations, these seemingly senseless sounds can convey a world of meaning. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed another lesson of Uncle Sam's American English. These audios are synced with our four-book series. Contact one of our professors or join our online course by visiting our Facebook page, Uncle Sam's International.